Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. This is your host, Roger Abel. Elias, how are you doing today? I'm good. Happy New Year. Welcome back, everyone. I know. I took off a little bit of time over the new year, got rejuvenated, and um, I'm excited for 2022 and what it might hold. I wish we knew what was going to happen, but for, unfortunately, I don't have that crystal ball. I do. I have a crystal ball. I'm kidding. I don't. I don't know. I perked up really quick when you actually said I had a crystal ball. I wish. I've been trying to develop one. It'd make our job a lot easier, but, you know, I'm not. We're not in the prediction business. I'm not in the prediction business either, so. Yeah, anybody who's listened to our show for any period of time knows that we don't try to predict. But one um, one thing I saw, this is on MSNBC, Elias. This just came out maybe about a week ago. Stock market correction is overdue and likely imminent, says 70% of the top analysts out there. So I think it's first more important to kind of let people know what is a what's a correction. Does it need to be scary? A correction simply is a 10% down market. So the market goes down 10%. It's really not that big of a deal in the long-term investment world, but we use this to get people all excited and create good media and good buzz for those who don't have media filters. Um, and it makes great articles because 70% of the analysts say it's going to happen. Here's my argument. They don't know. If they did, they wouldn't be an analyst. They'd be timing the market. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And the one thing to me, this is okay. So articles like this, a stock market correction is overdue. That's of all the talk like this, what makes the market overdue for a correction? Well, I, I believe here's what they're looking at. If they go back and I'm pulling up the slide here, if, if you go back and look at um, the PE ratio of the overall market and just in general stock valuation. So this is from the capital group <clears> that forward looking um, PE ratios of the S and P 500 uh, currently are like 22 the historical average is about 16. So what that says is we're trading, you know, 30 ish percent above the historical price earnings ratio. And we talked about this on a previous episode. What if just valuations have changed? What if we're just in a new world where we're going to move away from the historical norms and what's always been the norm and we're going to be at these higher levels because things have changed, whether it's because there's more money coming into the market and people are now willing to accept more risk. They're willing to pay those valuations. We, we don't know, but let me go through four valuations. And this is why I believe people are saying there's some type of a correction. A correction doesn't mean it's this huge cataclysmic event that, you know, you need to just run to cash. You just need to be aware of what's going on. So today, I shouldn't say today, but the end of 2021, the S&P 500's P ratio is average. Historical average is 16, um, trading at 22. And this has a 15 year range. So this would go back to 2007. The P.E. ratio of the S&P 500 is traded anywhere between 11 and about 23 um, on average. Uh, the MSCI EFA, so the All World Index, um, historical average is about 13. It's trading at about 15. So you could say arguably it's not that far off the average. MSCI Emerging Markets, uh, historical average is about 11. 
trading at about 13 and the MSCI all world small cap. It's historical average is about 17. It's trading about 18. So what it's saying is based upon historical price earning ratios, uh, more value, we'll just call valuations for simplistic terms. Uh, we're trading above those averages. Um, so my, my, my thought on that, which, and this is just to kind of bring another perspective to it, because to me, it's, it's easy to look at that and say, okay, well, the PE ratio is too high and use it as an indicator. And I just got done in the last couple of weeks. I, I listened to a podcast that, um, Tom Lee was on and he made a very compelling argument for, we could be entering a time where PE ratios get much higher than what they've ever been. And then there's also some people, there's kind of this, there's compelling reasons and there's compelling arguments that you can make that potentially companies have been undervalued for a long time. When you look at the price earnings ratio and then compare it to the returns people have made. And and when I, when I say that, I'm not saying that any of those things are going to happen, but the data suggests it could. And there's very compelling arguments that maybe the way we valued companies in the seventies isn't, isn't fair to value companies the same way today, especially in a different interest rate environment. And with technology, technology improves the efficiency of businesses. And, um, and Josh Brown the other day made a point that people that run companies and run businesses continue to get better at doing that. And I think he was highlighting a point that they continue, even with high PE ratios and all this stuff, companies are showing the ability to remain profitable and increase their earnings. So I, I think there's more, to me, it's almost too simple to just look at the, the PE ratio and say, oh, well, that's an indicator that it's too high. It's time that I, I get out of the market. Or I guess I think it's foolish to try and time the market based on that. It's interesting you say that because last year we kind of had the theme that be prepared for things to change. Things are going to change. Well, that might be one of those changes. Another good example is inflation rose to the forefront last year. Historically, people have always thought gold's a great hedge against inflation. That didn't work out. It's not working out. Gold isn't doing anything. So some of these like textbook, I learned this in finance class when I went to school. That doesn't mean it's going to work out. That's just some textbook that might have been written 20 and 30 years ago. And if you ever read the bottom of a prospectus, what's it say? Past performance is no indication of future results. And right. we should think about that and just think about things um, really clear. So, for instance, I just looked up the P.E. ratio of um, apples, 31. Well, so it trades at twice historical average of the S&P 500. Apple's been a fairly safe play for a lot of people over a long period of time. I mean, I, I right, think of their, if, their if earnings continues to grow, they continue to grow. And you know what happened during COVID people just use their phone more. They use their technology more. Um, so I think that, you know, listening to the analysts, they might be right. There might be a 10% correction, but that doesn't mean that it really should change your overall financial picture. If you have that, well-written, well-crafted financial plan, and you've got your optimal allocation, all that a correction really should become for someone in that situation is an opportunity probably to rebalance. Say, hey, great, I have these bonds that arguably are fairly flat. 
maybe haven't done anything over the last year, maybe they're slightly negative. Can I sell some of those things and rebalance and get back into the stock market at a 10% lower price? I mean, that's really what a correction should mean for most people, especially if you're in the accumulation phase. I mean, obviously, if you're in the decumulation phase or the distribution phase, that's a completely different conversation we would have with somebody. But in the accumulation phase, that's just an opportunity to rebalance. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting point. And that it, it makes me think of another um, part of the podcast I was watching. So, and we're talking about corrections. So, a correction's a 10% drawdown. Well, so Tom Lee was also making another point, and he so he owns a, a research company. So he he owns Fundstrat. Yeah, it's called Fundstrat. So they and they um, they base like mutual funds and professional money management hire them to help them with research. And he was making a point about how in twenty so twenty twenty one we had almost a record. There was like sixty nine new all time highs. Um, which at LPL put a chart out about that, but there was the peak to trough drawdown was 5.2%. That was the max, which is historically low. Right, historically low. And the average peak to trough drawdown for the entire history of the market is right about 14%. Well, he started talking about how in the 90s, they had a, he was like the head of research at Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney. So working with the wealthiest families and business owners in the country, and he said, when you look at like flows today of retail investors, so that would be flows of money into a firm like Morgan Stanley. Um, when you look at those flows back in the nineties, they had this phenomenon where like, maybe not a phenomenon, but he was saying we had this run of years where anytime there's a two or 3% drawdown, our retail flows would just spike exponentially. So, I guess the point I'm making is there's some other there's other things going on, and to just say that we're overdue for a 10% correction. Well, if you if you think about some of the behaviors of his point, the behaviors of some of the wealthiest people in the country, if they're if they're buying the dip at two and three percent drawdown, it might be challenging to get to the 10% correction level. I'm not saying it won't happen, but if that's like what the top research analysts are seeing from probably savvy investors or very wealthy people. Um, you know, this very this could happen. It very likely could not happen. It's funny you, you mentioned the 5% drawdown because everybody thought last year was like super volatile. It really wasn't that volatile. I mean, no. it went up every time. Well, every there was time, a lot of headlines. There was a lot of news. Yeah. And it, it goes back to one of the core principles that was developed at our company 20 years ago, and that's how to build a type of a media filter and understand and figure out where you're getting your information from, right? There's dangerous information. There's good information. Um, you know, Tom Lee, why wouldn't you listen to the guy? They call him a permable. Well, the market's up like 80% of the time. Why would you be a perma bear? It doesn't make right. any sense to be a perma bear. Well, and, and people <laughs> say that, you know, cause you know, everyone, especially when you're right, like he is a lot, people want to poke at you, but just, if you look at his track record of predicting, like, end of year prices and all that. He's consistently right. Here's what's interesting. He's been right more often than Harry Dent's been right. But very few people know who he is. Not, I, as, I, many, I, not as many retail investors. I promise probably. you, retail investors, way more retail investors, even people in our industry that aren't on the research side of it, right? If you're not running a fund or a hedge fund, you may not know who Tom Lee is. 
but you know who Harry Dent is because he makes, I want to think advisor today, Harry Dent's predictions. In fact, here's what's cool. They ran an article about what he's got right and what he's got wrong. And we've talked about this throughout the year, kind of what what he's gotten right and what he's got wrong. But somebody actually went out, called him out and said, hey, look, these are the things that Harry Dent's predicted. And what we're going to highlight and kind of go through is really why he's more dangerous for retail investors than good. And he's literally pushing an agenda to sell books, tapes, and videos because he has not been a successful investor himself. No, he hasn't. And actually, I kind of- I like how I called him out. Like, I've never called him out. He hasn't been. He's had fun shut down. You know, he said go long. What did he say go long on last year, early in the year? And he just, it was- 30-year treasury. 30-year treasury. How'd that work out? Right, if you took all your money, the money that you had allocated to equities in your portfolio. If you listen to him and you took that out and went long 30 year treasuries, you're not in a better position today than you were a year ago. You'd have been better just sticking to your asset allocation with stocks and bonds that was determined by your financial plan. You'd have been significantly better off. So one of the themes I kind of felt like I was getting out of, so Harry Dent's predictions of doom and boom. So someone went through and they just talked about all the things he's been wrong about. He was basically, it's almost like he got the, if you look at the decade from 2000 to 2010, and then 2010 to 2020, he would have been, if he would have like flipped his predictions in those decades, he would have been right a lot more often. But the things he was predicting in the early 2000s happened like between 2000 and 2000, or. 2010 and 2020 and then the stuff he predicted for the last 10 years happened like from 2000 to 2010 so it, he's constant and, and it highlights one it's very hard to predict markets and all that and two for him he's just wrong he's just wrong a lot but his underlying motive is to in my opinion is to sell subs- newsletter subscriptions and sell books and he does he does very good he and does gets very people well talking about him. we're talking about him again but let's go through what he got right let's give him the credit of what he's done right so first he correctly called the bubble burst in Japan in 1989 and the long recession that ensued after that he predicted the bursting of the dot com bubble Additionally, he's credited with predicting the populist groundswell that propelled Donald Trump to the presidency. But beyond these predictions, many of the forecasts have missed the mark. So in 1999, he wrote a, wrote a best-selling book, The Roaring 2000s, How to Build Wealth and Lifestyle You Desire in the Greatest Boom in History. Um, he predicted the stock market would experience significant boom during the first decade of the century. He predicted the Dow would hit 35,000 by the upcoming decade. Um, this did not happen. The S&P 500 and Dow finished the decade at levels lower than 1999. So Dow Jones in 1999 was 11,500. In 2009, it was 10,400. It's really one of the only flat periods. If you look at rolling 10-year periods of time, it's probably the only rolling 10-year period of time we've had had a flat market. Um, so was he just was he just early? Remember in, um, well, the, predict- remember in the big short, I'm not wrong, I'm just early. Was Harry Dent just early this time? 20 years uh, early, 20 years early, 15. Yeah. 20 years early. <laughs> so that's another, but here's what I find predi- interesting. He actually started out. I wonder if his whole mind, mind shifted when he started out predicting things were going to be good and then it didn't work out. He's like, well, 
everybody it didn't work out. I got to predict bad stuff because then in 08, he predicted the greatest depression ahead. Well, we didn't see a depression whatsoever. The Dow Jones in 09 was 6,547. Um, as of this article is 35,927. When I woke up this morning, it was 36,300 and some change. Um, yeah, so I mean, Dow 35,000, he, he was right eventually. Do you still get credit, though, if you're 20 years early? Does it matter? What's our thematic, thematic saying on this? <laughs> eventually, I'll be right. Well, if I predict long enough, eventually, I mean, you will right. eventually be right if you predict long enough. If if you predict that the market's going to go down 50%, eventually, history tells us you'll be right. I just don't know when. So the question becomes, do you have the wherewithal and the time and the knowledge to wait it out and wait for something to be right? Or are you just better off executing a financial plan, figuring out your asset allocation, and moving down the road? I mean, that's what most people are successful at doing. Yeah, oh, that's... All, all successful investors, that's the way they do it. I mean, it's as simple as that. We can't say all. I mean, we don't, I don't know if it's definitive, but let's say the vast okay. majority, that's how they do it. The ones um, I know. The ones you know. <laughs> Personally. Um, December 16, 2016, he predicted Dow 5000. It's another loser. 2017, now, now he's getting broad in 17. Major crash within three years. Wrong again. I mean, I guess kind of he was right with COVID. See, but I then don't, I, I, don't, I don't even know. I don't even know if I caught, count COVID as a crash because in 90 days it was all back. Right. And that's just it. It was so, it was so fast and short that that the I guess what, what would it the drawdown of COVID? That's what considered a crash. I mean, it was down what? 30, certainly a 40%? bear market over 20 percent. I'm, Certainly a bear market, but it turned out to being one of the greatest buying opportunities of my lifetime. Right. And it didn't last like it didn't last long enough to be painful. No, I don't think. And most savvy investors, they just invest when the market was way down, they put more money in. So the, the story wrote, the story is we're not going to talk about Harry Dent anymore this year. He's always wrong. He's only been right a couple of times. He might be right in the future, but we don't care. So that's a bold prediction right there that we won't talk about him again. I'm not talking about him again. I'm, he's out. You he's refuse. done this year. I'm done. Um, so there's a guy named Ron Sirs. He was featured in Think Advisor and said there's never been a time worse time to retire. And I started thinking about this. And really, there's five reasons why he cites there's never been a worse time to retire. And some of these are actually really, really valid points and he talks about this five to ten year moat or you know side of retirement on each side as one of the most dangerous times and i'll actually agree with him on this because if you think about a retiree the biggest risk to someone who's retiring today like hey i'm retiring today the biggest risk is that the next 12 to 24 months the market goes down 30 and 40% and I don't have a game plan put together to deal with it. So I'm going to agree with him. That's the biggest risk that people have is market volatility early on in retirement, but that can be taken care of assuming you have a distribution strategy put in place. So if someone's sitting at home, they have a 401k and they think, Oh yeah, well, you know, I'm fine. I'm just going to keep my 401k invested and I'm going to take out my $4,000 a month to live on. Well, that may or may not work. And the times when it probably won't work 
is when all of a sudden the market has some type of a big correction. But there's really five reasons why he gives that it's one of the worst times to retire. It doesn't mean you can't retire. It just means you have to have a plan for all of these things. But number one, interest rates have never been lower. That's true. If you think about this generation of um, boomers getting ready to retire, they kind of got the short end of the stick, meaning yeah. they borrowed at the highest interest rates as they were accumulating their assets. And now they're getting stuck with the lowest paying interest rates when they retire. So what happens? They have to probably take or reach for risk to generate the income that they actually want to get in retirement, whether it's buying dividend paying stocks or lower quality bonds to get yield. You see this, especially if you look at credit spreads right now, it's amazing what people are paying or buying high yield debt for. I mean, high yield debt is at one of the highest levels of all time from a from a cost standpoint. And it's the lowest quality, but people are saying, hey, I need that three and four and five percent yield to make it work. Yeah, they, they they need the yield. And actually after one of our recent radio shows, so um after our live radio show, a lot of times we go out to happy hour and one of um I call him one of our super fans. He always comes over and says hi and and he goes where can I park my money that my principal is safe and I can just get a 5% return and live off of that? Did you guys just laugh? Yeah, I laughed. I said, <laughs> nowhere. That doesn't like that doesn't exist. But I get where he's coming from because, you know, just like we were talking about or even points we made on the show before, like isn't the historical return on cash like just above 5%? 1999. The average yield on the 10-year treasury is 5.65%. In 98, it was 5.26, 97, 635, which means you could have went out and bought a 10-year treasury bond and got a 5% guaranteed rate backed by the full faith and credit-paying ability of the United States government. Right. Yeah, and so for someone like him, someone like him who I guess I take that as he's content with the amount of money that he saved up but he just wants, he needs an income stream, just like everyone, to live. Um, but what he's looking for, that 5% super safe dividend yield, it just doesn't exist now. But does that mean that you can't have a distribution strategy that will work? There will probably be portions of your money that will be a little more volatile. But you can still have a distribution strategy that in the long in the long run will work. And when you're 60, 65 years old, you can't just plan for the next five years. You well, have to have a plan for the next 30, 35, 40 years. The key word there is um, plan. You need to have a distribution strategy. That's what we employ, implore people that are at that age, have a strategy put in place, right? And it doesn't start the day you retire. It's probably like a year, two years out. If you think about if the market crashed today, what's it on average going to take to get back? two to three years. So you better have two to three years of pretty liquid cash sitting there so you don't have to sell stock investments. You know, Combating a market correction, a crash, all these predictions out there, it's really just a matter of having a plan. Just if you approach it that this is gonna happen, it's not if, but when, how am I gonna deal with it? You know, it's really similar to identity theft. I just assume it's gonna happen and then it becomes an issue of how am I going to deal with it when it happens? If you're prepared for the problem, won't be that it won't it might still be an event, 
but you're going to lessen the shock of it if you're already planned for it. So that's the easiest way to overcome low interest rates is have a plan. Um, Tui, Tui says stock prices have never been higher. That's ugly too. I don't know about that. If you think about the stock market, I expect them to be higher in the future than they are today. So I really don't think that's all that relevant. Um, I feel like that's a little bit of market timing. Three, right. we've never, ever printed so much money, not even close. COVID relief, et cetera, et cetera, 13 trillion. Okay. Everybody else is printing money too. Like, what's the other repercussion here? It's going to cause some inflation. Yeah. I don't know as if that's a reason that puts your retirement at risk if you have a plan. I, yeah, I, I don't think so. And I just, um, and I know some of the inflation, I know there's a lot of worry about inflation. I just saw another interesting chart about savings rates. So savings rates are basically back to normal. So I'm hoping that's going to start solving like some of the labor shortages and stuff. It's a lot of the free money that got injected. It's kind of running out now. We need to so get, hopefully we need we, to get a chart that compares people are they better off today than they were a year ago and two years ago? Because my argument is there's a lot of all this money came into the market, right? A lot of it got invested. A lot of it got saved. It didn't all get spent. I mean, let's be honest. I, I know it didn't get spent. I know people who got this money that didn't need it. It didn't get spent. It got saved or bought an asset of some kind. Why are real estate prices through the roof? Because everybody has more money. They're willing to pay more for their goods and services. Um, is that good or bad? It, it just is what it is. Um, he also says the wealth divide's never been larger. I don't know why that really affects anybody's retirement, but what what he does bring is it, it um, brings a little bit of unrest, right? I, I think we'd all agree that this country is probably as divisive, divisive as it's been in a really long time. Um, and I don't know how to solve the problem. I don't want to solve the problem. But he he claims that social unrest can, you know, maybe upend your retirement. I don't, I don't think so. Um, then so many people have never been in the risk zone simultaneously. And he calls that risk zone the side of, you know, five years on each side of retirement. And I'll agree, that's the biggest risk. But that risk can be planned away. There are ways to make sure you're going to have a successful retirement. But if you're winging it, that's not one of the ways that you're going to accomplish a successful retirement. You can't wing this anymore. Too volatile. There's too much news out there that's going to scare you and make you make a bad investor decision. You need to get some help and have a really well-crafted financial plan. Yeah, and so the the risk zone he's talking about, that's what the five to ten years on, on each side of retirement. When you start and when you're finishing well, he's So if you're 60, it's the t five to 10 years before and the five to 10 years after you retire. That's your biggest risk in retirement. And it's really the risk of, hey, the market goes down and I get an adverse sequence of returns. In fact, we have a sequence of return chart. I'll have Molly post it to the website, which is btwellshow.com. Um, it just shows two individuals who start taking exactly the same amount of money. They have exactly the same amount of money to start, but they have two different periods of time when they start. And to summarize it, one individual loses like 25% the first year and the other one makes 20%. The person who lost 25% ends up with no money. The person who had the positive 20% the first year ends up with way more than they started with, even though they took exactly the same amount the whole time. 
And it just shows a show if you're at home living saying I have a 60, 40 portfolio and every month I'm just going to take a distribution from this portfolio without a strategy, without a true defined distribution strategy, it shows that it can blow up in your face. Um, and like I said, we'll put that out there at btwellshow.com. You can get, get the little slide of what that looks like. And that's really what he's saying just in a different way is the sequence of returns probably has more effect on your retirement than anything else. The cool thing about the financial planning software that we do, Elias, that's what a Monte Carlo simulation is. It's taking into account all the different sequence of returns you could have given your unique parameters that you have for retirement, how much you're going to spend, how much you have, what your risk tolerance is, you know, where your assets are located between IRAs, Roth IRAs, all those different things. That's what that Monte Carlo does and is able to quantify for somebody. Okay. And that's why we believe the financial plan is really the only tool that can give you a sense of clarity with retirement. Yeah. Cause at that point, when you're running that simulation, you're, you're projecting, but you're also factoring in the variance and the different sequences that events can happen or yeah. returns can happen. So it's part of it's, you know, and not, right, nothing's bulletproof, right? But you have to do, you have to take all the information and use that to your advantage as best as you can to position yourself to be successful. And, and I caution people about using an online calculator because there's a, there's a couple reasons why. If you don't input the information correctly, it's just going to spit out garbage, garbage in, garbage out. The second thing is I can think of one very high profile personality who has a calculator to see how you're going to do for retirement. And he assumes a 12% rate of return and he assumes you're going to make it every single year. It's a static 12%. I can tell yeah. you if you use that calculator, you're going to think retirement's going to be rosy. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you reality. it's not going to be accurate. There's never been an investment in the history of the investing world that's made 12% every single year without variance. You may average 12%. I won't argue that. That, that could happen. You could average it but you're not making it each and every year. So if you lose the 25 or 30% the first year, then you average 12, your calculations are already off. And people don't understand, if you're not in our world, they may not understand how those calculators work and kind of the risk and the danger that you could experience by using those if you assume that's going to happen. Because most people's inclination is, well, if I average 12% a year, that's 12% a year. <laughs> No, it's not. It's 25 one year. It's yeah, to it's the a, next. It's an annualized it, return. Yeah. Yes. Which is an average. And it goes back to the story we've always talked about. If I have three people that all started with $100,000 and they all average 8% over the next 10 years, most people assume that they all have the same amount of money. And that's not true. They all have a different amount of money depending upon the sequence in which they retire receive their returns. Right. Yeah. You um, can, and that's a weird thing to think about is that you can, you can have the same result, like in an annualized return, but how you got there is actually going to determine the dollars that you have. So like those three people could all have three different amounts. They, they most, probably do. Unless the only way they have the same amount is if they're invested exactly the same, at exactly the same time. Yep. That's the only which way is not, that doesn't happen. So I mean, it could, but not likely. Yeah, not likely. 
Well, I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of the Behind the Well Show. You can check us out at btwellshow.com. If you need help and want to contact an advisor, there's a click click here button, I believe, that you can um, click to get some help. Elias, I want to close the show and say this is the last show we're going to talk about Harry Dent. This is our New Year's resolution. We're not talking about him this year. And he's, uh, he's, Okay, I, I hope... I hope that comes true, but I think that's assuming that he doesn't say something so egregious that, get me that we up. bring him up. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. To me, like that depends a lot more on him than us for the year. Cause if he says what he always says, yeah, I could see us not talking about him. But if he says something that's just so extreme, we can't help it. I could see him getting brought up, but we'll see. All Time right. will tell. Well, we appreciate everybody listening. And if uh, you have any questions or, uh, Anything you want us to answer on air, you can go to btwellshow.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.